Hello, and welcome to the May 6th, 2022 episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. If you heard the last episode of the podcast, you heard me lament the current state of affairs regarding the injury to Lucy Charles Barkley that has forced her from missing tomorrow's Ironman World Championship in St. George, Utah. Well, I got some listener feedback on what I said, and I want to address that before going on with the episode today. A couple of listeners reached out to suggest that while my commentary was accurate, that maybe I was being a little bit harsh in the way I delivered it. Now, I want to first and foremost thank those listeners for letting me know this. One, because I'm always eager to hear what my listeners think, and two, because now I have an opportunity to address something that others may have perceived as well. I want to be really clear. I stand by the content of what I said. I think that while there is no way for me to know with 100% accuracy, as a keen observer of the sport and as a medical professional who has researched these things pretty extensively, there really is little doubt in my mind that Lucy's injury can be directly traced back to her diet and weight loss and its likely impact on her reproductive hormones. Where I'd like to change things, though, is in the harshness that people may have perceived this message being delivered. I certainly didn't intend for it to come across that way, and I'm really sorry if it did. The reality is that I'm sorely disappointed that Lucy won't be racing this weekend, and even more disappointed by her public messaging that is sought to lay blame for this injury on pretty much anything and everything other than what, in my mind, is pretty clearly the obvious truth. As someone who has a huge and predominantly young female audience, I'm worried that the wrong message is being sent, and this is what led to my coming across in the way that I did, and for that, I apologize. If anything, I'm upset not with Lucy, but with the people responsible for protecting her, and who are supposed to guide her when this kind of thing happens. Collectively, I feel they have let her down, and in so doing are letting her fans, myself among them, down as well. So that's where the the harshness came from, and I hope with that context, it's more understandable, if not necessarily excusable. As always, I welcome feedback to make this program better, so please feel free to drop me a line or leave me a comment in the TriDoc Podcast private Facebook group. Apply to be admitted and join the conversation there. I should comment briefly that at the time this is released, it is about 24 hours away from the start of the big race in Utah, and while I hesitate to really go out on a limb and be like many other publications or podcasts in choosing a pre-race favorite, I know that for most listeners who've been with me for a while, you won't be surprised that I personally will be pulling for Lionel Sanders. A difficult bike course like this one is going to be well-suited to him, and his training in Arizona should have him ready for the tough conditions. The big question, of course, will be the run. It's an absolute bear of a course, and I can't help but wonder if someone like maybe a smaller runner like Gustav Eden, or even a lesser-known athlete who runs well, could come from behind and take victory. We're going to know soon enough. On the women's side, in the absence of Lucy Charles Barkley, that race is going to be really interesting. What can we expect from Daniela Reef? Will Annie Haug be able to run her way to victory again on such a difficult course this time? Or will a really strong biker, who no one is talking about, like previous podcast guests Sky Munch or Laura Siddle, surprise everyone by distinguishing themselves on this very difficult course and then getting away with a big enough lead for the run? We're going to know soon enough. And then we can begin building the chatter towards the return of the race to Kona in October. Lots of excitement tomorrow and in the months to come, that's for sure. On the show today, 
I've spent quite a bit of time discussing injury, what with all of the faces who will be missing from this weekend's race, and when we think about injury in triathlon, we generally think of the overuse injuries that come about because of the large amounts of training volume that professionals, especially, but age groupers as well, put into race preparation. Well, some really interesting research, recent research has been published that suggests that these kinds of injuries may not only be as a result of physical stresses. It turns out that psychosocial stressors can also play a fairly important role in who gets them and how they come about. I'm going to take a look at that and give you an overview, and that's coming up shortly. Later, I am joined by the CEO of the Professional Triathletes Organization, or PTO, Sam Renouf. The PTO has been on the scene for several years now, but has really come into its own over the past couple of years with the emergence of the Collins Cup and PTO World Rankings, and now this year with their own series of open races. It hasn't all been smooth sailing, of course, as I have chronicled from time to time on this program, but for the most part, the trajectory has still been positive. Well, Sam was very gracious in taking some time out of his busy schedule and did not shy away from any of my questions, and you can hear all of that coming up in just a bit. Before all of that, I want to remind you once again about the bonus content that my Patreon supporters get by subscribing to this podcast. For anywhere from $3 to $10 a month, Patreon supporters of this show can help keep the podcast on the air and informing and educating all of you on the science of health, the science and health. Before all of that, I want to remind you once again about the bonus content that my Patreon supporters get by subscribing to this podcast. For anywhere from $3 to $10 a month, Patreon supporters of this show can help keep the podcast on the air and informing and educating all of you on the science of health and fitness in triathlon. In exchange, they can hear bonus interviews with the likes of Joe Friel, Sky Munch, Laura Siddle, Dave Scott, Mark Allen, and many others. And now, while supplies last, subscribers at the $10 a month level also get a Boco TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you can get access to this awesome thank you gift and all of the bonus content. The URL for more information, where you can see a picture of the hat and sign up to become a supporter, is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, I thank you in advance just for considering. Injury is as much a part of triathlon as swimming, biking, and running. And for professional triathletes particularly, who are continuously pushing themselves to perform at a level that few of us mere mortals can fathom, it's a continuous lurking hazard. As I've mentioned a few times recently, the triathlon world has had some hard luck with respect to injury woes of late, with a few big names succumbing. Sometimes, as was the case this past spring for two-time world champion Patrick Long, it may be the result of an acute traumatic injury that's sustained in a fall or a crash. Lang, of course, fractured uh, a bone in his shoulder in such a bike accident. But for most professionals and high-performing age group athletes who put in a fairly large amount of training volume, a far more likely cause of injury is overuse where increasing load and inadequate recovery combine to result in cumulative wear and tear that eventually causes damage to bones, tendons, or muscles. Jan Frodeno is a great example of this, with his recently announced partial Achilles tendon tear. However, the prevailing wisdom on overuse injury, that they are simply a result of an imbalance of load and recovery, has recently come into question with an additional factor being raised as potentially having an outsized and yet previously unrecognized role. 
researchers at the Swedish School of Sport and Health Sciences recently published a systematic review in the journal Sports Medicine. And that article summarized a body of research that posits that not only is there a physical component to the development of overuse injuries, but that also psychological and psychosocial factors may also have an outsized impact, not only on who is at risk for developing them, but how these injuries actually come about. Dr. Ulrika Tranius and her team published the article titled Psychosocial Risk Factors for Overuse Injuries in Competitive Athletes, a Mixed Studies Systematic Review. And in this paper, they summarized the findings of nine different quantitative studies and five qualitative studies that evaluated a total of uh, just over a thousand competitive athletes for a total of 27 different psychosocial factors and their relation to the development of overuse injuries. Psychosocial factors were divided into three different categories. There was first the intrapersonal, for example, a person who has an exercise dependency, a person who has a very strong identity as an athlete, someone who's a perfectionist, someone who takes a lot of risk-taking, that kind of thing. The second category was interpersonal, for example, the coach-athlete relationship or interpersonal stressors related to work or other factors within athletics. And finally, the last category was sociocultural. For example, the perceived motivational climate that an athlete trains in. Now, based on the studies that were reviewed, some of these factors were identified more frequently than others in athletes as issues, but not all could then reliably be associated with an increased likelihood of overuse injuries. However, there were definitely some factors that did seem to be associated in this way. For example, with respect to the first category, the intrapersonal risk factors, athletes who are more likely to report elevated perfectionist tendencies, in other words, those who, are, who really hold themselves to high standards, were much more likely to experience chronic psychosocial stress and in turn showed higher rates of developing the typical overuse injuries. Similarly, Athletes who have a very high perception of themselves related to an athletic identity or who tend to use goal-oriented motivation in their training and racing also tended to have higher rates of overuse injuries. I don't think that this is too hard to understand or even imagine. I'm sure we all know people who are like this, and we can envision some of the pros who've recently had overuse injuries as being very much like this. Maybe while you are listening, this sounds distressingly familiar. Maybe yourself you've had recurrent overuse injuries. You know this person. They go for a long run and have some pain in their foot, for example, but they're so focused on getting it done and logging those miles that they ignore the issue and push through it, sure that it's nothing. It will pass or worse. They see it as a test to be overcome. You can completely understand how this kind of internal psychological factor can then predispose a person to injury. Well, the other categories also had factors in them that were also associated with injuries. For example, in the second category of factors, the interpersonal risk factors, it turned out that athletes who uh, had reported problematic relationships with coaches, specifically those in which communication is difficult, reported higher than expected overuse injuries. Again, this doesn't seem to me to be t terribly hard to understand at all. An athlete goes for that same run I just described, in the middle, let's say, of a big training block, and feels that pain in their foot. But because of previous interactions with their coach, when they mentioned these kinds of issues, they were dismissed or told maybe to suck it up, get through it. Maybe this time they don't mention it and they try to push through. And the result? Well, 
It's not too surprising if that result turns out to be injury. And finally, with regard to the third category, the sociocultural risk factors, athletes who find themselves in environments that encourage, quote, mentally tough, end quote, attitudes and behaviors are, again, more likely than athletes in more supportive environments to experience overuse injuries. And once again, this seems fairly self-explanatory and not that surprising, but what is surprising is that this is one of the first times such a relationship has been explored and indeed documented in the scientific literature. Now, as I have said, some of these findings may seem intuitive, but others might be less so. How can it be, for example, that given the same kinds of training and recovery, that these kinds of psychosocial factors alone could then play into the development of physical ailments? Dr. Tranius and her co-authors went on to explain that because chronic overuse injuries differ from acute injuries in terms of timing, psychosocial factors can have a real and important impact, and that can make it much more easy to understand how they can actually lead to injury. For example, when an athlete suffers an acute injury, like a sprain, for example, they're out on a run, they roll their ankle, and they end up with swelling and a clear injury to their ankle. Well, in this case, the time of injury is very well defined, and the process for recovery and rehabilitation is pretty easy to prescribe. With overuse injuries, though, there's no one point of time in which the injury actually happens. Rather, it tends to be more of an ongoing process that develops over time. With such a gradual onset, there's more opportunity for psycho and physiological stressors to play an important role. Forgetting about the kinds of stresses that I've already outlined, let's consider an age group or maybe even a pro athlete who is dealing with all kinds of stresses external to their sport. Maybe family issues or a problem with work. Well, those stresses, just like the other ones I've described, take a physical toll. Psychosocial stress, we know, reduces effective recovery after training, and in the presence of an underlying developing injury, this can promote worsening of the problem. Furthermore, psychosocial stressors are known to have an effect on the autonomic nervous system and hormonal responses, both of which can negatively impact on behavior and negatively influence recovery and even worsen injury. The authors of the paper are careful to point out that while their study suggests these links between psychosocial risk factors and overuse injury, the evidence establishing causation is still not established. Most of the studies included in the review were small and tended to be influenced by the biases of the authors that conducted them. Further, none were truly experimental which is a requirement to truly establish cause and effect. Remember, when we find associations by looking backwards, we should then do experimental studies where one group is subject to an intervention, the other group is not, and then we compare the two groups. That way we can say whether or not the intervention actually had an effect. It's a little bit hard to do that kind of study with psychosocial stressors, but it could possibly be done. But in the absence of these kinds of studies, at this point, all that can really be said is that there seems to be a pretty strong association between these kinds of psychosocial factors and the development of overuse injuries, and that this association is plausible based on what we know of the biology and the psychology at play. Now, despite this lack of actual evidence suggesting causation, the authors do make suggestions for athletes and coaches to try and be more aware of the level of psychosocial stress in their lives in order to try and manage them, and to be able to modify training in order to accommodate for them and mitigate the likelihood of overuse injuries then coming about. One such recommendation is to use assessment tools to monitor stress on a weekly basis. 
This could be done so as to know when an athlete is seeing an increase in stress that may put them at risk for worse recovery and therefore may need to have a decrease in training volume or intensity. The authors also point out that there is evidence that suggests that athletes experiencing increased psychosocial stress are also at risk of experiencing those acute traumatic injuries like the sprain, making the monitoring of stress levels particularly important for athletes who really want to lower their, lo- their risk of experiencing any type of injury. And if you're wondering how to monitor your stress, there's all kinds of different self-assessment tools that you can use that are available by simply performing a Google search. Other recommendations for athletes and coaches to come out of this study were to always strive for a positive and supportive training environment that emphasizes self-care and improvement over toughness and the non-disclosure of aches and pains. And finally, open and honest communication between coach and athlete that is non-judgmental and allows for athletes to feel supported and heard at all times. Look, overuse injuries are unlikely to ever be completely eliminated from sports like triathlon, but this early understanding of how psychosocial factors can play a role to the extent that they do on top of the traditional view of this being purely a physical process can only help. By making accommodations to assess and modify these factors, we can hope that high-performing athletes training for future events might be spared the kind of disappointment that so many have faced in the past. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com or join the TriDoc Podcast Facebook group and there you can join a conversation and submit your questions for me to consider. Sam Renouf is the CEO of Professional Triathletes Organization based in London. Prior to that, he was the CEO at Motive Group, a global mass participation business with over 300,000 participants at events including the Sydney Marathon, Malibu Triathlon, and Surf City Marathon. He was also the general manager of Active Network Sports Business, where he was responsible for leading all customer-facing aspects with the market, including sales, marketing, strategy, and business operations. Sam has spent over 17 years in the endurance sports industry, including representing Great Britain as an elite athlete for triathlon and as a commentator for the 2012 Olympic Games. He holds a BSc from Loughborough University and an MBA from London Business School. But today, he's joining me here on the TriDoc Podcast to talk about the PTO and its role in triathlon. Sam, thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. Yeah, nice to be able to chat. Thank you for the long intro. (laughs) Well, you know, it's nice to have a lot to say about someone. Uh, With all of that, though, I'd really like to start just first by hearing about your uh, journey to becoming the CEO of the PTO, the Professional Triathletes Organization. Yes, it's been, uh, for me, this is a very long journey. I mean, it's not culminating. I suppose we have to wait till we've successfully launched the PTO Tour and in five years' time, it'll be the culmination of the journey. But it's certainly a step towards that, having been a triathlete in my younger days, as you pointed out, racing for Great Britain, um, then working in the endurance industry, but not necessarily related to triathlon. And then when the PTO was formed and they needed someone to drive the commercial operation, I looked at this and went, wow, this is this is full circle because I get to go and fix a problem which certainly from a personal perspective, um, I felt nearly 20 years ago. So I stopped racing as a professional athlete because primarily there wasn't enough money in the sport. The main reason was I didn't have enough talent, which is the, which is the real reason. But secondly, after talent was, the, you know, I can't remember what I placed, but it was top 10 in an Ironman. I got $800 for the privilege and that wasn't going to pay a mortgage, let alone pay for my flight home. And so I shook hands with my coach. I was 21 at the time and said, look, it's time to go, time to go get a real job. 
fast forward 20 years and my job is now trying to fix that problem and making sure that the, the checks are bigger than $800. Now, for my listeners, I uh, have a Facebook group for the podcast, and I asked them, what would you like me to ask Sam? And one of the oh, listeners great. is uh, sort of new to the sport, and she said, okay, well, what exactly is the PTO? What's its role? So help me help my listeners who are new to the sport understand what the role of the PTO is. Sure. Well, and the best way to sort of describe the role is probably to compare us to, to organizations other people would have heard of. So we are triathlons equivalent of the PGA Tour or the ATP in tennis and the WTA. So we are a membership-based organization um, that's focused primarily on promoting professional aspects of the sport, but in doing so, grows the sport itself, right? So our, our mission as an organization is to celebrate the sport of triathlon. The way we do that is by promoting and providing opportunities for the greatest athletes on the planet, which we believe are triathletes or professional triathletes to come together and race. Right. And so our, our business strategy, which we'll probably get onto in a second is, is largely around media and promotion and building up the sport. And you uh, mentioned the professional tour. That's uh, yes. obviously something that's in the future. So tell me a little bit about that. So we actually, yeah, we announced the PTO tour. Where are we now? April, like a, a couple of months ago. This is our first year of the PTO tour. So last year we had our inaugural event, the Collins Cup, which is sort of a Ryder Cup based um, triathlon competition, which we can we can chat about. And that was the first step towards launching a tour. So one of the things in in, in creating the PTO that we recognised there was a problem in triathlon was that the calendar is too fragmented. And what I mean by that is it's kind of two things. There's not enough compensation, full stop. But also when there's not enough compensation, it means that fields get really, really fragmented. Like if, if you're racing for three or $4,000 as the win, as an example, or even $10,000, there's not much an incentive to race other top athletes. Like it sort of fragments the audience. And so there's, sorry, frag, fragments the fields or put it in a more, in a simpler way, blunter way of putting it. The only time really that we see the greatest athletes go head to head is in Kona each year. And, you know, you can't build a narrative around a sport if people only race one time a year. So the PTO tour was created primarily to fix that. And it's an opportunity where we can see we as triathlon fans and indeed endurance sports fans, because that's how we look at the world, um, will be able to see the very best athletes um, racing together head to head five times a year, potentially six times. And what that allows us to do is build a narrative, right? Season long, get behind these people and create fans. Yeah, and I, I respect that. I just want to push back just a touch because, you know, we look at Oceanside coming up this weekend. We're mm -hmm. recording this uh, April 1st, and Oceanside is uh, tomorrow. And we've got a great field on the men's side. Uh, I haven't looked at the women's side, actually, so I don't know what's going on there. But uh, I know on the men's side, there's a terrific field. And so, and that is probably dictated a little bit by circumstances. We've had a dearth of racing because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so we're coming out of that now. And uh, we do see uh, some pretty interesting fields. We did at Florida last year at the Ironman Florida. So how do you, um, and, and I'm not opposed to more races and I'm certainly no, no, not no. opposed to the idea of a tour. I just, you know, we do see in Ironman racing, uh, pretty respectable fields from week to week. I'm just curious, uh, you know, what your response is that the need for the PTO tour to, to make this argument that no, we actually are going to see a better, uh, you know, consistent fields. So it's always fun when you have an interview and you just disagree with the interviewer, because I'm just going to disagree with you. <laughs> Simple as that. Um, we don't see enough fields when the very best athletes are together. So like this is a good, it's a good example of a great field at Oceanside. Oceanside does typically start the season in a big way. But Jan Frodeno is missing um, for the men's field. If you look at the women's, Daniela Reef, to my knowledge, is racing. Laura Phillip is not. Lucy Charles is not. Um, Kat, uh 
Cat Matthews is not. So like there's an awful lot of athletes that aren't. Um, and our thesis is that you've got to get everybody together for it really, really to matter. So uh, I use a, the good distinction. Let's talk about another sport instead. Um, there, if you've got, I'm trying to think of, you've got the Miami Open in tennis. Um, there is the event that takes place at Larry Ellison's Resort, which I'm forgetting the name of in California. Um, Indian Wells. Indian Wells, thank you. A um, bunch of great ATP events, which everyone would say, look, those are fantastic events, but they're not the US Open because the US Open is the only event that compensates the athletes enough, both in media and in prize money, that you're guaranteed if they are fit, that everyone's there, right? It's not even a question. And so that's the distinction. It's not so much about having a good field. It's about having the greatest field because the minute one or two of these athletes aren't there, people begin to switch off. I mean, from a tennis perspective, right? People know that the fact it was shown, the ratings were down last year because Federer wasn't playing. And so our, our logic is that we need to bring the very best athletes together multiple times a year to build up the narrative. It's one of the reasons why Formula One, if, if, you're, a, if you're a fan, and it wouldn't surprise me if you're not, given it in the States, but probably have watched Drive to Survive and seen the narrative that they build all the way through the season and it creates drama and excitement and allows us as fans to follow something. And, that, and that's kind of what's, what's missing in our opinion. Yeah, I, I again, I don't have a problem with more racing, and mm-hmm. I certainly don't have a problem with following the stars that I enjoy following. Uh, and so, I, I am not at all opposed to seeing more. <laughs> so that that to me is a good thing. Um, and it's less maybe just to speak on it as well. It's a really good debate to have. I like like talking about these kind of things. We're not wanting to create quantity. We're wanting to create quality. Right. right. So we're not coming in and saying let's add fifty more races to the calendar because actually that would make the problem worse. We want to add five, which, you know, we don't view ourselves in by, by adding five. We don't think we're going to scare Challenge or Ironman or Clash, like whose volume, they're a volume business, right? They want to have events all around the place. We're just going to add five to the calendar and we're going to put the prize money and the media attention there that we think it'll be the five most highest quality races alongside Kona. That's it. So, so let me ask, I, I want to follow up on that because yeah. how then does the PTO work well in the same sandbox, after all, with those other organizations to make sure that everyone succeeds. Because, you know, there's been this kind of narrative that there's this conflict or oppositional uh, relationship between PTO and some of these other organizations, specifically, I'll call it out, with WTC. And, uh, you know, that's not, I think, beneficial to anyone. I think that we'd all like to see everybody do better because of this. So how can the PTO work with these organizations to make sure that this is beneficial to everyone and the um the adversarial relationship if that's the right way of putting it um that's from a few years ago but everyone just remembers it right to be fair so when i say it was from a few years ago it was when iron man was owned by its previous owner wasn't investing in the professionals prize money was going down um debt was going up and there was a real concern right and so we were very public in our a disappointment with how it was being run and B, our desire to own it because we thought it could be better, right? So that's the reason why I think the early, earlier stage, fast forward a couple of years, much, much better relationship. Um, we talk to them reasonably regularly, like, you know, not, not all the time. I'm not going to say they were like, we're in each other's pockets, but more of a relationship there. Certainly from a calendar perspective, we're looking at when, when the events are scheduled. We purposely avoided scheduling our US Open um, directly uh, on the weekends that, that Ironman had. We actually had a weekend where they had a major race. We decided to move it as a good example. And we think things are improving. Prize money is up at IMM for the first time in 10 years. Um, they announced their deal with Outside TV. So this weekend, as we all know, we'll be able to watch Oceanside. So they're investing in media more. And so we're actually very bullish and excited about the changes that we're seeing there. It's great for the sport. That's great. Again, I, you know, I think this is all 
Great. And I, I have noticed this coming across as well. So uh, if it's a result of this collaboration, then I, I'm thrilled. One of the things that you've mentioned is that this idea that PTO is really all about this professional tour. And I'm curious then, you know, the the, the events that you've mentioned, the US Open, the Canadian Open, they're both they have age group races and, and there was a, there was a, a misstep, if you will, where, you know, there was this promise that the age group rates would be low. They came out ending up being about the same as WTC rates. Then there was a lowering of the rates. Why yeah. even put age group races on at all? No, oh, great, great question. It's one of the ones we spend a lot of time talking about, whether it's with investors, whether it's with sponsors, whether it's cities. Um, age group racing is core to what triathlon is, right? It's one of the most special things about the sport is that you get to, as whatever age, depending on, on what you are, obviously, you get to go and toe the line and compare yourselves to the greatest athletes in your sport, who are, in our opinion, the greatest athletes on the planet. Um, that doesn't exist in tennis. It never will. It doesn't exist in Formula One. It can't even exist in golf unless you're incredibly wealthy and you pay your way into a program, right? And so to us, it's absolutely core to what triathlon is. And so for a start, we don't want to lose that. Secondly, from a more pragmatic perspective, um, age groupers and, and age group participation, those are the largest fans in the sport. And so they're the people we want to welcome, right? So it's actually quite the opposite of like uh, the way we describe it is the, P- the PTO athletes are owners of the organization. Therefore, they're the owners of the events. They're actually the hosts. They want to welcome age groupers to come and race with them rather than the other way around. Um, so it's actually really, really important to us. Um, and then thirdly, most pragmatically, perhaps, is um, spectators and, and atmosphere. We all know from COVID the last few years how bad sport is if you do get rid of spectators. And to us, the most logical people to have come and spectate are the ones that are diehard, you know, people that train 10, 20, sometimes more hours a week. Um, at the moment, the sport is structured in a way that those people, even though they might be, you know, Jan or Lionel or Daniela or Lucy's biggest fans, they don't get to see them other than as they as they zip past or maybe not quite so fast if they're if they're ready at the front of the field um so what we're going to do is have age group racing alongside and what i mean by alongside is we'll have it during the event weekend but we clear the courses and have a separate schedule so that you could race jeff in the morning do a hundred kilometer race you know come back grab a hot, hot dog hopefully grab some merchandise in the pto store and then you can go in a grandstand and literally compare yourself to Lionel Sanders, who's then doing almost exactly the same thing. Sometimes the courses will be a little bit different because we need to be able to, you know, have it's more people on the roads when you've got age groupers and we want to be able to have more laps with pros. But the concept being you can bring everyone together but still have the experience of racing and then spectating. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Uh, do you think uh, that it's really necessary then to distinguish yourself with a lower fee? Because, I mean, let's face it, the, the cost is the cost. I mean, I've never been particularly, I've never felt particularly gouged by pricing in Ironman or, or half Ironman races just because I know the costs involved having spoken to race directors. And I think you guys probably found that out too when you initially set your fees. So why make a big deal to distinguish yourself with lower fees? So I'll make a slight joke of it. For a start, we're on a tri-doc podcast. You're a professional doctor in North America. You can afford the fees. Not everybody can. <laughs> right? So that's that's fair. I, I listen, I, I have talked I have talked on this podcast before about the cost of entry, not right. just into a race, but the cost of entry into the sport being way too high. It is what it is, though. I mean, you have to pay for police. You have to pay for all the things. Oh, I mean, it's expensive. an expensive sport. Yeah, very expensive sport. Yes, and no, I was yeah. only joking by starting with it. Your your price sensitivity being maybe less than than, than others around the world. Absolutely. But, oh, no question. 
But uh, in terms of specifically to us changing the price, look, very happy to, to talk about it. It was a painful experience to go through from a PR perspective, but we own our mistakes. Um, we really genuinely believe that the price, actually the price points we even launched with, which was about $400, $450, um, was reflective of the experience that people have when they come along to the event, right? So you're going to see the very best athletes in the world. So even better than you get at 70.3 Worlds, all there, big razzmatazz, really, really great experience. And that's worth worth more. But what we recognized is actually whilst we truly believe that, because we're the ones delivering and putting it on, we haven't necessarily proven that to the larger age group and triathlon community, and we should earn that trust. And so rather by having to price as a bit of a barrier to people coming along, we wanted to reduce it. We've been always very public that age group revenues, certainly at these price points, even at the ones we had previously, are not how we drive revenue. And so rather than people feel stretched to even come, we want to welcome them. Um, and that's us speaking both as the PTO, but also our athletes, which is primarily where we had the feedback is we had multiple professionals contact us when we went, when we first went live and said, hey, this kind of just feels like a, a, a for-profit entity that's kind of squeezing the community again. I thought we we're doing things differently. And we listened and we had a regroup and we had a board discussion and we said, no, let's let's change our pricing and, and earn the loyalty of the industry mm -hmm. community over the next few years rather than um, expecting it straight straight out of the gate. But you are not considering yourself, as I, as you said earlier, I mean, the fact that you moved to race and everything else, this is not, your thing is not going to be about putting on age group races and being in direct competition with some of the people you've collaborated with, Clash and, and Iron Man and all that. What we're hoping to create, and we hope we create them near it sooner rather than later, are the very best multi-sport festivals that celebrate triathlon in the world. And the main way you celebrate that is by seeing the greatest athletes. But it also allows for amateur participation. So each event will have age group racing, um, but it's one part of a big pie. If that's the, you know, not, not yeah. necessarily the best metaphor in the world to use, as opposed to being the main course, right? If I, I'll keep on the food angle, right? For mm -hmm. us, it's, um, it's one part of the mix. It's not the main mix. And therefore, we don't view ourselves as, as a pure competitor because certainly if you think about the time we spend in the given day or the given week and certainly our budgets, Edge racing is important, but it's not everything, right? We're spending far more time on television and distribution. And how do we get Lionel Sanders and Yara Fredeno seen by more people? How are we working with our partners like Discovery and Eurosport or CBS to sort of get athletes out? That's, that's really where our focus is. But when those cameras pan around, we want them to see lots of people. And right. group is important people to be able to see. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about the formats. Uh, I... You know, I was really excited and I applaud uh, you guys for the innovative, you know, attempts to change some of the, or to not change, but really to look at different formats. Uh, I, I was not a huge fan of some of the things that you did with Collins Cup. And I, I recognize I'm just one person. Uh, I didn't love the three people racing. I, I To me, one of the things, I love the team aspect. I thought the team aspect was great. I love the, the presser before uh, with all the trash talking. I thought that was wonderful. It enter, it, it was entertaining. It brought in this idea of, um, you know, the, you could see the personality of the athletes, which is something that I've always enjoyed when I've spoken to them. But I thought that it took away something that, you know, a, a lot of uh, fans like, which is to see uh, these athletes go against each other. And we didn't get to see Lionel race Jan because they were in different races. Mm -hmm. Um you know, and and the other thing about the Collins Cup is it was on a pancake flat course, and so mm -hmm. the uh, the course itself, which is usually a big part of the race, was taken away. And I think back to 
uh, the Olympics with its mixed relay and how exciting that was. I think about the event that the UCI put on a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic, they had this multi-day event where day one was a crit, day two was a, a circuit over a mountainous course, and day three was a team time trial. And that was enormously popular among cycling fans. And I find myself wondering, couldn't the PTO experiment with some kinds of events like that where, you know, they have a mixed relay uh, of long course mixed relay and, and maybe another day they have some kind of team uh, time trial uh, event, uh, but in triathlon format. And, and that would be super innovative and super uh, different, but still maintaining triathlon. And I just wonder, have those kinds of uh, things been entertained or are those on uh, the, the blackboard in any way uh, as being things that might be in the future? Yeah, look, you're, you're, you're right on the money, frankly, right? We, we, we talk about format a lot. Um, it's not just about pointing the cameras at the athletes and saying, bang, go, and, and off you go. And there are multiple reasons why the Collins co- co- format is the way it is. Um, primarily, it's actually to appeal to people unlike you, Jeff, right? It's the people who can switch on the on the TV. They're, they're flicking through Eurosport, CBS. They've never watched a triathlon before. They have no idea what's going on, but they can understand, oh, this is USA versus Europe. Oh, I'm from the U.S., I'm going to watch this, right? So that, that's the that's the first reason, and then the second is one that's even more subtle that that, that uh, someone in America wouldn't necessarily relate to, which is that if and I'll use myself as an example in the UK, if I'm watching a golf tournament and I see that a Belgian's winning, I don't really care. I'm going to sw- I switch off and move on because we're all partisan. Right? I'm not a big I'm not a big golf fan, so I don't I'm not naturally drawn to it. But when the Ryder Cup's on and Europe's winning, I don't care whether it's Belgian, French, or German. It's Europe and we're united, right? So what it's doing is it's simplifying the sport into a scoreboard narrative so usa europe internationals and then it's consolidating very large regions around the sport um primarily to appeal to a a larger fan base um if our format was the collins cup at every event i would totally understand that not necessarily the criticism but the 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 concern people have is like oh you're straying a bit too far for triathlon it's like but the, the point is actually with this particular event out of the tour the purpose is to do that and to sort of try and elevate the sport in that way, just like, frankly, the Ryder Cup does, right? It's the event which golfers who, sorry, people who would never normally watch golf will happily sit down for three days, get the food already and engage with a sport which they would never dream of watching. They might watch the Masters, but they never dream of watching something lower down. Um, and that's kind of what that was built around. Now, that said, you know, long answer to your question, do we even look at the format of the Collins Cup and involving the teams in different ways, team trial, team time trial format? short distance racing, mixed relay. It was outstanding, the mixed relay in Tokyo, um, one of the most exciting probably events of the entire two weeks. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're thinking about all of those things over time and how, how can we bring them all together to make this a, an even bigger celebration of the sport than it is. Yeah, and I want to be clear. I, I think the teams is is I liked it. Now, mm-hmm. being originally Canadian, I, I don't know that I loved Lionel being lumped uh-huh. in with the rest of the world, but I get it. Canada's small okay. uh, in terms of athlete base. Um, I, I did like the teams. I just, uh, you know, I think about uh, when you look at professional teams uh, in cycling, for example, they all race together and then they work in a team to 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 get their people up in the front. That that kind of thing. I look at the World Championships in cycling as an example of where teams, uh, they all race at the same time. So I, I like the teams. I just uh, kind of envision teams working uh, as opposed to individually working together as a team, as, a, as an interesting way of doing things. So just a thought. Uh, I think it, it is... Uh, 
I liked it. I thought it was really innovative, but uh, I totally understand where you're coming from is trying to showcase the sport to people who don't see it on a regular basis. Uh, I do want to kind of finish with a couple of questions related to this notion that uh, the PTO is very much for professionals. Uh, there's been some criticism from up and coming professionals. And I've asked, I've spoken with Sky Munch and with Laura Siddle, and I've asked them this question and they had some really great responses. I'm just curious on yours. Um, Right now, the point system for the PTO tends to reward those athletes who are already in the top 40, because if you're in the top 40, you get more points. So if I've got this right, please correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it's an invitation to the PTO events. So you have to be in the top 40 to get that invitation. And then when you participate in a PTO event, you get more points. So it tends to favor the athletes who are already established. Um, Some of the newer, younger athletes have made the comment that for them, it's going to be a lot more difficult to crack that top 40 because they're disadvantaged by the fact that they don't get the invitation and therefore the points that they earn are, are less worth less. And therefore it's going to take them a lot longer to try and get established. Um, do you see that as a valid concern? Um, so there's a, a couple of, couple of things around it. And I start with by saying, the rankings are controversial. The point systems are controversial. Um, that's not unique to triathlon. That like I think every sport that has this, there are people that like it, that don't like it. Right. Um, I would add that is it perfect? No. And are we changing it? Yes. Not necessarily like black and white. We're going to change it tomorrow. We're going to this is going to evolve just like the PTO will. Like not too different from our format conversation just then. Um, this is our way. We feel at the moment with the way that the sport is as it is, which is fragmented, as we talked about right at the beginning of this call, it's the best way for us to get economic benefit in the hands of 200 athletes around the world, right? So $2 million is paid out to 200 athletes. It doesn't all lopsided go to Jan and actually uh, Jan and Daniela and Laura. Um, it goes all, all the way to, to um, 200 athletes. And we're very grateful and humble, humbled, actually, that we're in the position to be able to do that. Um Actually, leaning into the the way it supports the lower-ranked athletes, I would argue that it, this is one of the best tools possible for a developing athlete because the way we currently do the rankings is to take the AIT score, as no doubt you know and your listeners will know, um, on regardless of the race. So provided there's some very low conditions to be included, which is... You know, I won't go into details of it, but the major, there are many races that are in, are in the, uh, the rankings. We don't put greater priority on the 70.3 Worlds or Ironman Nice because we think it's a better race. And that allows you to go and do, if you're an up-and-coming pro, you can do your event that's down the road. If you do a fantastic job and you score highly, you're going to shoot up the rankings, right? You're not required to go and go through the level of cost of flying all the way to Taupo to do Ironman New Zealand because we've given that a higher priority. So, And yet our main criticism, frankly, from most professionals is we would like to have more weighting to the higher-up races. And we're like, well, actually, that will hurt the developing athletes because what it will do is create that sort of better better get a better um component so that's one of sort of the, the trade-offs is the system as it is um as we it does the system will be used to invite the athletes to to the um to the pto tour events you're exactly right so the rankings will qualify them this year but as we establish our tour we'll be able to look at sort of other ways of doing it like is are there methods that we have qualification process it's one of the the things that again we kind of differentiate your comment earlier do we view ourselves as competitors to the other players in the space if you want to race in edmonton you have to go and race Oceanside or any other Ironman race and get a top score and come and do it. Right. So if anything, it's, it allows us to put our arms around the sport and welcome more people in. Um, but inevitably, lower ranked athletes on the way up 
everyone, I'm not going to say everyone complains, but there's always a bit of contention around it. Um, and we recognize it and we want to find ways that we can welcome, not just welcome the feedback, but grow from it and, and take it to, to a better place. So it's getting better. We, we, uh, we're excited about where it's at. Is it perfect? Not yet. Um, is it the right tool to be able to pay out a lot of money? We, we think so. And at the end of the day, given that you're an organization for the pros, I mean, that's really what it's about. So, um, and it's why it's really important. Like, it's why, you know, I rambled them, but it's a very important thing to us, right? Like, this is an organization for the professionals out there to make, as I said right at the beginning, athletes' lives that aren't as compensated at the level that they, they they should be or could be. This is one of the tools we do. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about it and talking about it. And we hope that everyone else does too. Like we love the fact that events are beginning to do their start lists based on the PTO rankings, you know, even if they're not necessarily calling them the PTO rankings yet, um, right. which is which is exciting for us. Right. Well, I have one last question for you, and that is uh, just globally – where do you think the sport is at right now coming out of the pandemic? I mean, obviously there's a lot of turmoil in the world right now. Triathlon seems to have benefited in some ways from the fact that during the pandemic, there was a big uptick in people buying bikes and getting running and everything like that. Um, from a professional standpoint, from an amateur standpoint, do you think triathlon's future is still a little bit muddy or do you think it's bright? Uh, what's your assessment? So I'm going to be naturally biased. If I wasn't, I'd be worried that I was in the position I'm in, right? So I had to obviously take it with a pinch of salt. But look, um, speaking pragmatically, you've touched on the reasons why we should all be very, very positive, right? Um, and actually, I'll be a little bit more negative. Um, if you wind back pre-COVID, actually, triathlon was in a bad spot, right? So numbers were beginning to drop off. Professionals were not being compensated well. There was a bunch of different things that were happening that were all red flags. It's one of the reasons I got involved in the PTO, right? I love the sport of triathlon. It was, this needs change. This is an organization that can change it. We have investors that want to change it. Fast forward the three years, certainly not all because of us, um, by any sense of the word. In fact, COVID obviously has nothing to do with us at all. Um, there are many, many positives. So I, I agree with your thesis that coming out of the back of the pandemic, numbers of swim cyclists and runners are through the roof. That's an opportunity for triathlon to convert those because let's call it what it is. They're not triathletes, right? If you haven't been racing, you're not a triathlete. It's what that unique thing about the sport. Um, so it's a, a unique opportunity that our adjustable market has grown. And then on the professional side, um, and this we can take a bit of credit for, we're almost entering like a golden period, right? It's it's phenomenal this year with the calendar the way it is with, you know, two, two Ironman World Championships. You've got the Challenge Championship. You've got Roth. You've got RPTO Tour Races. You've got the Super League. There, it's an exciting time, um, both to be a professional and then hopefully, if it all goes to plan, which certainly from our side, we're doing our best to do so, to be a fan of the sport. Because as I said right at the beginning, if all you've got to watch is Kona and it's in the middle of the night for the vast majority of the world, you're never really going to build a fan base around the sport. And in contrast, what did I reel off then? Like nine, 10, maybe 11 times when we can get behind watching these professionals do what they do best. And that can only cause the sport to grow. Well, I lied. I do have one last question based on something you just said, and that is uh, I'm going to ask you to wade into the politics here. Do you foresee and would you be in favor of the world championships moving out of Kona or at least maybe rotating out of Kona? Uh, yeah, well, I suppose it's nothing really to do with me given my role. Um, but do I think I should I think they rotate it? Yeah, I think they should grow the fan base by rotating it around. Um Kona will always have a special place in the sport, regardless of whether it has a world championship status. That's my view as a as a as an athlete myself. Um and therefore rotating it around will bring it to a bigger fan base and, and help grow the sport. Uh, I thought it was a great step that St. George is, is hosting it. Um and let's see what happens, I guess. 
All right. That's a good way to finish. Sam Renouf, CEO of uh, the Professional Triathletes Organization. I can't thank you enough for this uh, conversation. I really enjoyed it and I learned a lot. My pleasure. And that's it for this episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesch. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at www.tridocpodcast.com. If you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or if you have comments, or if you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode, please send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com or apply to join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group and uh, contribute to the conversation there. If you're interested in coaching services, I hope that you'll visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it, and of course, tell a friend. There's also always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multi-sport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy. This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by Life Sport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, Life Sport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider Life Sport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps, and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at lifesportcoaching.com.